following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, so it's, it's been good over the last few weeks to have Adam here. We had Adam Clarson uh, for three weeks, and he was teaching uh, the series called Jesus History. So talking us through the reliability of the Bible, the reliability of the Gospels that we read and and how we can trust what's written. And he talked about the evidence for Jesus existing and how we know Jesus was a real historical person and not a a myth, not a a fable or a myth of of history. Uh, And how when we open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we can know that what we're reading is based on eyewitness accounts, that it's reliable, accurate, historic information. And so we can have confidence in that. So I thought that what we would do on the back of that is to dive into a few passages in the Gospels and actually look at what they say. Uh, now that Adam's kind of set the scene for this and laid a foundation and, and hopefully given us greater confidence that what we're reading is reliable in an historic sense, let's actually dive in and look at some of the words and deeds of Jesus and see what he said and what he did. So we're going to look at a few selected passages over the next few weeks. And this morning we are going to be in the Gospel of Mark. So if you do have a Bible, uh, really good to follow along and have it open, or if you've got it on a device, if you've got a Bible app like the version on a device, there's Bibles at the back if you want to grab one, otherwise the words will be on the screen. But John Davies, one of our elders, is going to come and read the passage for us this morning. Thanks, John. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Uh, One of my favorite preaching moments was in 2014. Group of us from church went over to Israel for a couple of weeks on a little tour over there, and we spent some time in Jerusalem. And we were in and around the old city of Jerusalem. And on one of the days, we went to this place called the Temple Mount. It's a huge, big, elevated concrete structure, a big flat concrete structure on top, about the size of a couple of rugby fields. And this is the site where 
the old Jewish temple used to sit, the temple that was around in Jesus' day. That's where it used to be. It's not there anymore, but that's where it used to be. And you can uh, go up onto the Temple Mount sometimes, and you can go around the sides of the Temple Mount and sort of take in the whole, the whole scene and imagine what this would have been like. On one side of the Temple Mount, there are these huge stairs. If you just go back to that previous photo, Dilith, uh, huge stairs leading up to what was a gate. And if you look at that photo, you can see part of the gate that's still there. See on that left-hand wall there? Half the gate, half the archway of the gate is still there. And so these were the stairs that people would have gone up, Jews and others would have gone up to enter into the temple courts and they would have gone through that gate. And so you can stand on those stairs and you can say with reasonable accuracy, Jesus himself would have walked up these stairs numerous times and through that gate uh, multiple times in his life. And it's quite an amazing experience just standing in that place and taking that in. And I got to preach there just to our little group. Uh, it wasn't a mass revival, but uh, I managed to, to preach and just the privilege of preaching the gospel of grace in that place was amazing for me. I don't know whether the sermon was any good, but just to preach the gospel in a place of huge biblical and uh, theological significance was really powerful. And so this is the place where this story in Mark's gospel is set. And it's the place where the temple used to stand. If you go to that next slide, you see an impression of what the temple was. And it was very much still around in Jesus' day. It was an amazing building, this huge, opulent structure. It had just been refurbished. Herod, King Herod had refurbished it, and it was an incredible place. And uh, this is the location of where this story takes place. Jesus would have been to the temple numerous times over the course of his life. He, he went there as a baby. Uh, he went there with his family many times. He went there with his disciples many times. But this particular time is quite unique. And Jesus goes to the temple this time with a very specific purpose in mind for a very specific and very provocative reason. And that's the story Mark records. Now, to understand this story and this passage, you've got to understand the way Mark tells the story. In Mark's gospel. So, so what Mark does here, this is an example of what is called Mark's sandwich technique. Mark's sandwich technique. And what he's doing, sometimes in Mark's gospel, he will place one story inside another story. And the two stories go together. So what we've got here is these two stories. We've got the temple story, verse 15 to 19, the story of Jesus going in and causing havoc in the temple. But then on either side of the temple story, we've got another story. We've got this story about a fig tree. And it seems at first glance like the two stories aren't connected. And Mark doesn't directly connect them. But on closer inspection, it's clear that these two stories go together. And that there's a correlation between the two and that they interpret one another. So the fig tree story is in fact the key to unlocking the temple story. And the temple story is the key to unlocking the fig tree story. Jesus never says that, as far as we know. Mark never overtly says that. But the way the events unfold and the way Mark structures his material, it's clear these two stories are closely connected. So keep that in mind as we walk through the story, that these two stories are interpreting one another. So have a look at what happens here. In verse 12, Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem. It's not a long trip. That's only about two and a half k's. It's a pretty short walk from one to the other. Uh, as they're walking, Jesus is hungry. He didn't have enough breakfast that morning, apparently, so he's hungry. And he sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf. And so he goes over hoping it might have some figs on that he can chew on. But when he gets there, he finds there's no figs. It's just leaves. 
And that's understandable because Mark tells us that it was not the season for figs. So this is not surprising that the fig tree is not bearing fruit. It wasn't even the season for it. But Jesus does something pretty unusual here. He then curses the fig tree and he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It sounds a bit severe, doesn't it? It sounds a bit harsh, the poor old fig tree. I mean, it's not its fault. It wasn't bearing figs. It wasn't even the season for figs. But Jesus just curses this tree. Why does he do this? Mark's sandwich technique. This is where you've got to come back and think now that the fig tree and the temple story are connected. And what's happening here is that the fig tree represents the temple. Okay, that's the key. Write that down if you need to. The fig tree represents the temple. It's a symbol of the temple. It's an object lesson of the temple. What Jesus does literally to the fig tree, he is about to do symbolically in the temple. Okay, that's what we need to keep in mind as we travel through the story. So Jesus curses the fig tree, and then they carry on to Jerusalem. And they walk up those stairs and through that gate, and Jesus and his disciples find themselves in the outer courts of the temple. And this was also a place called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the only part of the temple where non-Jewish people were allowed to be. They were allowed to go so far into the temple precinct and then no further. And as they came into this place, Jesus and his disciples would have been confronted by an almost overwhelming kind of scene. I mean, you might think of the temple being a quiet, serene place, like a quiet cathedral. It was anything but. This was a busy, bustling, noisy marketplace full of people, full of activity, the outer courts of the temple, crowds of people everywhere. This was the area where people would buy their sacrifices that they would then go and give to the priests and they'd be offered on their behalf. So you have all these stores, all these vendors uh, selling animals of all kinds. They're selling sheep and bulls and goats and donkeys and whatever else that people are going to offer. Doves, birds were offered. Uh, and people could buy whatever animal they needed to to offer whatever kind of sacrifice they needed to. So you've got stalls of animals all through the, the temple complex. And also people could buy their accessories because you've got to have accessories to go with your sacrifice as well. It's not just the animal. You might also buy a bit of wine, uh, some spices, some salt, some oil to kind of sweeten the deal a little bit if you really needed to get back in God's good books. And so you kind of get your accessories as well and you got your animal. And the other thing that goes on in the temple court is people had to pay a tax. Jews had to pay an annual temple tax to keep the temple running. And that was due right at the time Jesus entered the temple in the weeks leading up to Passover. So Jews from all over the world would converge on the temple and they had to pay their temple tax. Problem is, they had to pay the temple tax in the Hebrew currency. And so Jews would bring their coin from all over the Roman world, all kinds of different money, and they had to have a foreign exchange booth in the outer court of the temple. These people were called the money lenders. This is where you get that term in Mark. The better word would have been money changers, but this is what they did. They took the currency, whatever you had, and they would give you the Hebrew currency so that then you could go to another stall and pay your temple tax. All this is happening in the outer courts of the temple. And then add to that the fact that this was also just a thoroughfare for people, bringing merchandise through from the Mount of Olives to the old city of Jerusalem. So constantly people just coming and going all the time. So this was a really calamitous kind of place. It was noisy. It was smelly. It was busy. It was cluttered. It was chaotic. You've got to imagine the scene. It's a marketplace. It's like a, a, a typical Middle Eastern bazaar happening here. And Jesus and his disciples step into this scene. 
in a sense, they wouldn't have been surprised, I don't think, with what was going on because Jesus had seen this before. In fact, he'd been there the previous night. So he knew. But he comes today to make an incredibly important statement in the temple. And what Jesus starts doing, as you read this passage, is he just starts causing havoc in the temple. And he starts driving out people from the temple courts. I mean, you get the idea. Jesus just starts telling people to get out. He just starts, not I don't think violently, but strongly suggesting to people, now might be a good time to leave. Here's your nearest exit. I mean, he starts cajoling them and corralling them towards the exits. He might have literally taken stuff off people and said, no, you're not taking that through here. Mark tells us he prevented people from carrying merchandise through the temple court. So you can imagine him literally maybe taking the, taking the stuff away from people, saying, no, you're not going to carry that. You're not going to do that. He's, t- he's setting animals loose all over the place. And then he gets these tables where all the money changing is happening, and he just flips them. He just flips the tables open over. Imagine that. Imagine someone coming in this morning, flipping our info center over, just walking around, just causing absolute havoc. And so now you've got money just spread everywhere, scattered everywhere, all sorts of different currency, all sorts of different coins. And then he gets the tables of the people selling the doves, and he sets them free, turns those tables over, and the doves are everywhere now. So, I mean, you just imagine the chaos of the scene. You've got animals now running free through the temple courts. You've got people freaking out because they don't know what kind of madman this is. You've got other people that are just outraged because someone's messing up their business. You've got money all over the place. So now there's an absolute bun fight because people are grabbing a few coins on their way out the door. You've got doves flying in everybody's face. So this is just pandemonium that is going on here. And the incredible thing is, this is all completely intentional. So this is not some kind of uncontrolled outburst. This is not like Jesus just lost the plot, just lost his rag and flipped out. I really wanted to call this message Temple Tantrum. I thought that was so clever. But I couldn't because it's not a tantrum, is it? A tantrum is an uncontrolled outburst of anger. I don't think this was uncontrolled. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. This was thought out. This was purposeful. This was very deliberate. Yes, I think he was fired up. Yes, I think he was angry, but this was a very thought out and deliberate maneuver to make an intentional point. And the question is, what was Jesus doing and why was he doing it? Well, a good place to start is to look at the words Jesus says. Right in the middle of this scene, Jesus makes a statement. In the middle of all the chaos, he says something, and it's recorded in verse 17. He says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Now, what he's doing here is bringing together a quote from Isaiah in the Old Testament and a quote from Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Two Old Testament quotes, and he's stitching them together. The Isaiah quote is the first part. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is saying that was the original purpose of the temple. It was supposed to be a place where all nations could come and worship God and pray to Him and offer sacrifice And give thanks, not just the focal point of Israel's relationship with God, but all nations. This was supposed to be a place where anyone from anywhere could come and and, and meet with God and and be in His presence and give thanks to Him and, and find relationship with God, with Israel's God. 
And it's significant that Jesus says that right in the court of the Gentiles, isn't it? The one place where Gentiles, non-Jews, could come and worship. And he says, that's what this was supposed to be. A place of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations to come. But instead, he says, you have made it a den of robbers. Now, that phrase comes from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is writing hundreds of years before Jesus. And he was writing at a time when Israel was in an absolute spiritual low. They'd wandered away from God. They'd turned to other gods. They were joining in the worship of all sorts of pagan gods. They were engaged in all kinds of detestable practices. And they were so far from God and weren't listening to anything he had to say. And yet, they kept on coming to the temple and offering sacrifices. And they thought that as long as they did that, they were safe. And they saw, they saw the temple like a security blanket. As long as we just keep doing the right thing in the temple, we're good. We can just ignore God over here. We don't have, our hearts can be far from God, but as long as we're offering the right sacrifices, nothing bad's ever going to happen. And Jeremiah said, you're dreaming. Something bad is coming. You're going to be judged. And they were. The temple was destroyed. And Jesus is now picking up on that phrase, and he's saying, you people are just like the Jews in Jeremiah's day. You're coming in here and you're offering all these sacrifices and you're buying and selling all these things and you're engaged in all this activity and there's all this, this sort of religious practices that are going on and yet your hearts are far from God and you're ignoring the very one that he sent because Jesus is saying, I'm right here. The Son of God is here. The new temple is here. The new living flesh and blood temple is right here. And Jesus is saying, you are failing to see what God is doing in your midst. You are failing to recognize the one he has sent, the Messiah. And you think that you're just going to keep on carrying on with all these sacrifices, hiding behind your sacrifices, hiding behind your rituals, hiding behind your religiosity, and everything's going to be okay. Jesus is saying it wasn't okay for the people of Jeremiah's day, and it's not going to be okay for you. And so you bring the words of Jesus together with the actions of Jesus. And you see that he is making a profound statement about the temple. What Jesus is doing is announcing God's judgment upon the whole temple system. Jesus is not just clearing out the temple. He's not just getting rid of people. He's not even just cleansing the temple. Sometimes that story gets referred to as the cleansing of the temple. Like Jesus is kind of just getting rid of the bad stuff and, and, and getting it back to the way that it was supposed to operate. No, I think the point is deeper than that. It, when you connect this back to the fig tree story, I think what Jesus is doing is cursing the temple. I know that sounds harsh. It's a harsh word to use, but it's the word Mark uses. Jesus is cursing the temple, not the people specifically, but he is cursing this whole temple system. And this is where you've got to come back again and connect it to the fig tree in your head and think, well, what did Jesus do to the fig tree? You think about that tree. It wasn't bearing any fruit. That was the problem, wasn't it? And that, that, that tree, Jesus is saying, is like the temple, and the temple has become like that tree. It's become fruitless. It's not bearing any spiritual fruit anymore. The temple was supposed to be a place that cultivated worship and life and, and drew people to God and, and cultivated faith within Israel and stirred people's hearts. But it's not happening when people's hearts are far from God because people had wandered away. The, the temple's not working like it was supposed to. It's just become lifeless. It's become dead. It's become completely fruitless. 
And in a sense, the temple was never really ever able to bear true spiritual fruit, was it? Because even though all these sacrifices were being offered and had been offered for hundreds of years, the temple was never really able to deal with the core issue in the human heart, the issue of sin. The temple could never do that. That's why Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It never could. It could never deal with that. It could make the person ritually clean, yes. It could tick that box. It could allow people to carry on worshiping God. It could mean that they were conforming to the law. It could cover all those requirements, but the temple could never deal with that issue at the the core of it all. It could never cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. It could never purge the heart of sin. It could never really truly cleanse people. It could never make us truly clean from sin. It just couldn't. The blood of animals could never do that. All it could do was just cover over sin until the true Messiah appeared. And Jesus is saying, he has come. Jesus has come as the true temple, the embodiment of everything that the temple stood for. He's the true temple. He's the one who embodies the presence of God. The presence of God is not located in a building anymore. It's located in Jesus, first and foremost. He's saying, I'm the living, breathing presence of God. I am God incarnate. I am God on earth, flesh and blood. And Jesus is our priest. He's our high priest. He replaces all of the duties and functions and roles of the priest. We don't need any human mediator anymore between you and God. You've got Jesus. He's your high priest. No person needs to stand between you and God anymore. Jesus has come. And most importantly, he is the true and living sacrifice for our sins. See, Jesus didn't come with the blood of bulls and goats. He came bringing his own blood. He came bringing a body broken, blood poured out on the cross. And when Jesus died on that cross, he became the ultimate sacrifice that cleanses us from sin. All of your sin, all of my sin was transferred onto Jesus on the cross, and he died for all of it. And that sacrifice didn't need to be offered again and again and again. It was one sacrifice, one all-sufficient sacrifice, once for all time, that perfectly and completely cleansed and atoned for the sin of every human person and everyone who would receive it by faith. That sacrifice of Jesus is absolutely sufficient to deal with the problem that the temple could never deal with. And now Jesus is saying, because this has happened and is happening, the temple is no longer needed. It's become redundant. It's past its used-by date. It's withered, and it's not good for much anymore. You think about what Jesus was actually doing when he turned those tables over, when he drove people out of the temple courts. There's a few brief minutes there where the whole sacrificial system stopped working. You know, like, like he literally brought the system to a halt for a couple of minutes. If you can't purchase animals to sacrifice anymore, if you can't change money, the whole system grinds to a halt. And for a few brief moments, it did. For a few brief moments, the whole sacrificial system broke down. Now, I know in a couple of minutes it was back up and running again. And people kept on offering animals and sacrifices. But Jesus' point was never to practically stop the workings of the temple. His point was to make a symbolic action that demonstrated how God now sees this whole system. It's finished. It's done away with. 
It's completely impotent to ever save anybody because now the true Messiah has come. The true temple is here. True priest is here. True sacrifice is here. This whole system is now useless. And Mark reinforces that by putting the final piece of bread on the sandwich. After the temple story, come back to that final fig tree story at the end of the passage. In the morning, this is verse 20, as they went along, next day now, they see the fig tree. And what's happened to it? It's withered from the roots. Interesting that Mark adds that, hey, it's withered from from its very roots, that fig tree had withered. And again, this fig tree, this withered fig tree is now a symbol of the temple that has become fruitless and lifeless and is now withered from its roots and is good for nothing now except to be thrown on the fire. And many people see in these words of Jesus and the words of Mark a prediction of something that was going to happen 40 years later. That 40 years from this moment, the temple was destroyed. The Roman army marched into town and they leveled the temple. They, they destroyed it. They did not leave one stone upon another. In fact, you can go there today and you can see the, thro- the stones thrown over the side of the temple mount landed below. And I know, I want to be respectful here because I know that was an incredibly tragic event for the Jewish people. And that's an event that to this day causes incredible mourning and grieving among the Jewish people. So I don't want to make light of it. But I also think in the context of the biblical story, it does remind us that ultimately the temple and its system are no longer the way that God relates to men and women. No longer the way that we have access to the presence of God because now the true temple has come. And isn't it amazing how even though the temple's gone now, we in our lives so often still want to live like it's still here. I think this still happens. We, we may not bring bulls and goats and doves to sacrifice, but we can still so easily in our lives default back to a way of living in that temple system. And, and the sacrifices we bring are different today. We bring different kinds of sacrifices, but we still act in ways where we rely on the things that we do to make us acceptable in God's eyes. And the kind of sacrifices we now bring are things like, they're good things, like reading the Bible, uh, praying, going to church, joining a life group, giving, serving the poor, sharing our faith, being a good Christian, all of these things. They're all good things. They're all virtuous things. But we rely on these things to give us merit in God's eyes. We think by doing these things, we're going to earn our way into God's favor, earn our way into God's good books. And all we're doing when when we act that way, we're going back to the temple. And we're acting just like these people, and we've made it a den of robbers all over again, some kind of safe haven for us to hide behind when our hearts can be far from God. And we pretty soon realize that no amount of offering good deeds and sacrifices and, and trying, trying and striving and striving and earning, and none of that is actually going to earn us God's approval at all. None of that. We are never, ever going to be good enough for God. And so we can end up in this place of feeling like God's constantly disappointed in us because we can never do enough. I remember preaching in a church in the U.S. and after the service, a young woman came up and with tears in her eyes, she said, I don't feel like I can ever do enough to please God. And she was living back in the temple, figuratively speaking. She's back in that system of living like her relationship with God depends on her spiritual performance. She's stuck in that system. And Jesus has come to set us free from that system, 
Jesus has come to say that whole way of relating to God never worked anyway, and it's completely redundant now. Your standing before God does not rely on anything that you do, anything you bring, anything you can achieve, any deed you think adds some kind of merit, none of it. That doesn't count for anything. Your relationship with God depends completely and utterly on the finished work of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. It's done. It's finished. It depends only on whether you now belong to Jesus by faith and are connected to Him in His death and His resurrection. And if you are, your, your standing with God, your relationship with God is not about how good or bad you are. It's not about your spiritual performance day to day. It is about the obedience of Jesus, which was perfect obedience. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus, which was perfect faithfulness. It's about His death and His resurrection, which is done. And that's the basis of your standing before God. You don't make yourself acceptable to God. You can't. You'll never be more acceptable to God than you are right now because you can't dress yourself up in God's eyes. Man, we try sometimes, don't we? Make ourselves a little more presentable. You can't do it. Forget it. You'll never be more acceptable to God than you are right at this moment. God loves you as you are. He's saved you as you are. And He takes you where you are into His family. And so I would just say to you today that if you are tempted to get back into that temple system, and we can drift back into it after years of being a Christian, can't we? If you're tempted to go back, maybe today you need to allow Jesus to come into the temple in your life and overturn some tables. Maybe you need to allow him to cause a bit of havoc in your life and drive out some things that shouldn't be there and turn things upside down and remind you that you stand before God on the basis of Jesus. He is your righteousness. He is your hope. He is your salvation. We need to remind ourselves of that every single day, that our life before God is in Jesus. When God looks at you, He sees His Son. He sees Jesus. That's the basis on which you stand before God. Allow Him to remind you of that today. Allow Him to remind you that you stand before Him loved and cleansed and free with your sin completely atoned for and completely forgiven because Jesus, the temple, the true temple has done this, has done what you never could do for yourself. So let's run to him as the true temple. Let's embrace him as our true high priest. And let's trust him as our true, all-sufficient sacrifice for every one of us. Jesus, we thank you. Our hearts are just full of thanks today. And we want to say we love you and we thank you for what you have done. It's just, it blows our minds, Jesus, that you would come in such a way as to make yourself the sacrifice, to lay your life down, to die the death we should have died and rise again so that we can be made right with God. And Father, we just know we're so tempted to believe that it hinges on how good or how bad we are. And we're so tempted to believe that when we mess up and when we screw up, that you are so less inclined to be near us and so much more distant from us. And Father, I just pray you'd remind us again this morning that we're anchored in your grace, and it's not because of anything we've done. It's purely because of your Son. God, keep reminding us of that. Show us a thousand ways to remember that in our lives. In whatever way we need to hear that afresh this morning, I pray that the message of your grace and the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus would sink deep, deep, deep down into our soul and take hold of our hearts like never before. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done and continue to do in our lives 
and are yet to do in glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.